0: Welcome to Week in Horror. You gotta be fucking kidding. The only podcast that will feed your horror need.
1: The need to feed.
0: With JL. Yeah, I'm a fucking masochist. I'll watch that shit. (laughs) Eugene.
1: Somebody has to be the sex symbol, I'm sorry.
2: Alex. Shit, I just demonetize this forever. And Johnny O. How do you like that shit?
1: Got halfway through the monologue. (laughs) before unmuting myself golly it's one of those <laughs> fucking days
0: <laughs> with industry guests hi this is Richard Oaks director of host. hey this is Adam Leder director of hosts this is Matthew Mark Hunter
1: I'm Don and Ellie and you're listening to Week in Horror
0: and you're listening to Week in Horror
1: and this is Weekend in Horror and you're listening to Weekend in Horror
0: Welcome to prime time, bitch. News, trivia, and more.
2: One by one, we will take you.
0: Join our live show Wednesdays at 7 central, youtubecom week in horror, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Week in horror. Stay scared. <laughs>
2: welcome welcome horror fans it's wednesday 7 p.m central time and that means it's time for another episode of the weekend horror podcast the only podcast where everyone is a suspect And if you're listening to us (laughs) on your favorite podcast host you can join us here for our live show on youtube so you too can laugh and scream with us flex your horror knowledge in the live chat and maybe even win some trivia prizes covering select films released in horror history march 6th through Thank you all so much for joining us. I'm Alex, and with me tonight are Eugene and J.O. What's up, everybody?
0: Hey, hey, everyone.
2: What is happening, y'all? It's Wednesday. It's Man, it that happened be. fast.
0: It came up on his quick this week all of a sudden. I was kind of like, I was even a day behind at one point. I remember I was talking to Johnny <laughs> yesterday, and I was like, what are you doing? It Because he goes live on Tuesdays. And I was like, what are you doing live? It's Monday. He's like, it's Tuesday, dude. And I'm like, oh, shit. Fuck, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I lost a day. Yeah, I tell you, it, it happens when when I get into a when I get into like a, like a writing because I you know because I screenwrite uh, and do my own personal channel on YouTube beyond this. And when I was like wrote, I was heavy into writing because right now we're working we we're working on we have scripts in the works and we have all kinds of stuff going on and big news that we're eventually going to be able to reveal to all of our audience. And I was just in that zone. I was like in that writing zone where I'm focused. You know, for, 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 you know solely i'm at and of course the stuff going on you know people know about my dog jingles and everything and just dealing with that whole situation so i was in it like once all the writing was done and I was fine i was like oh i could take a breather and relax I realized I was not caught up with everybody else I was like
2: behind well, wait a second I can't relax because I'm three days behind
0: <laughs> the work just keeps piling up but but I think but I think I'm I'm think I'm good now I should be good now so I'm happy about that oh man oh man oh man but yeah this week it, it caught up quick so but I've, I've been looking forward to this because last week we had to go we went through we went through witchcraft so and anything Alex, other than
2: that is just a, <laughs> a, a look up.
0: <laughs> we got oh I knew eventually we were going to have to go through that episode. And I tried to put it off as long as I could. I was like, you know what? Let's just get through it. And then all of a sudden we got through it. And then, then we've got nothing but like actually like awesome movies to talk about for the rest of the season. So I'm really, really happy about that. So yeah, so this this one i have really, been really excited about because we got a bunch of stuff that oh, we got a couple of films that I'm really excited to talk about, one of which is a is a Nick D'Amichi film which is going to be a lot, which is one of my favorites of his, probably his best performance, in my opinion. But we got all kinds of stuff. But that was my week. My week was pretty much catching up with everybody else. What, what was y'all's week like?
2: Well, I mean, mine's not as exciting as Eugene's is, so I'll go first. Um, I started a new job. It is a 9-to-5 job um in a position that is way way above what i'm qualified for so that's just been kind of crazy monday we're back in the office which is weird to say um so yeah it's really just been kind of learning the ropes there meeting the team and uh it's in capel so it's like it's a little bit of a drive from where i'm at if there's any traffic at all not too bad if it's you know know, nothing (laughs) crazy new job stuff (laughs) exciting for me only (laughs) <laughs> well, that's good.
0: Good. New work is good. New work, you know, hey, it pays the bills.
2: Oh, yeah, it pays
0: yeah. the bills until this can pay your bills.
2: Right. Exactly. There's pretty much there's a number. There's a number that kind of has to meet in the middle there.
0: You know. <laughs> <laughs> Once it passes that number, then,
1: then we can talk. It'll, it'll be good.
0: <laughs> but I know Eugene's been busy over there uh, down in Texas making Hollywood dreams come true. And
1: Yeah, uh, I'm hoping um, it's an
0: exhausting business. It it really is. It's
1: so tiring being famous. So much work, phone ringing all the time. What? Stay (laughs) Um, I mean, so basically, uh, we got the trailer done for I directed um, an HBO pilot called Black Clown. I directed the first episode of it. And so, we finally, got the trailer set up for us. It's still not public yet. Um, on that's on that's going to be on the producer's discretion. But I got a chance to see the cut of it, and it looks the trailer looks really good. Obviously, I've seen cuts of the of the full episode and everything. So, hopefully, be able to maybe screen that trailer here on uh, here on Weekend Horror. That would well, be, be awesome. Sick on it and oh, yeah. so uh just with that and then just been working on doing some, some interview stuff and just some camera gigs here and there
0: fantastic look at that's just working just Disney working
2: AF. <laughs> <laughs>
0: all right well uh so it's been kind of a quiet week last week uh the new texas chainsaw massacre released and we, we you yeah, know we chatted about that and then of course um you know, but it's been quiet since then. There's stuff coming out soon that, you know, obviously we're going to want chat, to chat about, but this was a quiet week. So before we dive into tonight's selections, we're going to get in quick. Um, let's say hi to whoever's in the chat. Let's see who has joined us tonight. I see Angel Rivera was in the house Is it or is in the house. It's interesting choices. Let's get into it. We will get into it big time. So Angel, good to see you. Thank you so much for being here. Mystique Tina Jones is in the house. Good to see you. Says, Ooh, guess who gets to watch this week? Oh, I'm off sick for the week. Yay. See, that's awesome. You know, every cloud is a silver lining. We appreciate it. We appreciate it, Misty. Donnie Does That's in the house. Good to see you, Donnie Does That. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, wow, I've got this going. Bam. Let's get our uh, patrons up there on the banner. There they are, all the amazing people that help us to make this show possible. So... Good to see you, Travis Brown. Thank you so much for being here. Sarcasm's in the house, one of our amazing patrons. Thank you so much, Sarcasm. Thank you so much for being here. Same with Charlie Welch. Good to see you, sir. And NANA, another one of our patrons. Thank you so much for being here. Love having you all in the chat. Jinjus in the house says hello, everyone. Good to see you. There's Media Macabre, or a.k.a. Aaron Reese, a.k.a. the Trivia Killer, is in the house. Good to see you, sir.
2: So good at trivia, earned himself a spot on the fucking show. Yes, he did.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: so we give we had to give everybody else a chance to win. <laughs> Anybody had a chance? Best solution ever. So and he and uh, and uh, Aaron has been amazing on the show. He's been absolutely stellar because he is his, he is a wealth of horror knowledge, um, in addition to everything that we all know collectively. So the the encyclopedic knowledge of the genre just got so much bigger. So, good to see Aaron. Thank you so much for hanging out. And I see Skitchcrasher in the house. Good to see you, Skitchcrasher, says hello all. Hello to you. Thank you so much for being here. And I see, I knew I saw somebody else. Dave Cernick is in the house, just subbed in. Thank you, Dave. We do appreciate it. Thank you so much. I hope you really, really enjoy the show. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Definitely down in the comments below. Cindy Johnson says, still working, but listening. The only way to work is to listen to us. And of course, your other favorite channels. But we appreciate it, Cindy. Thank you so much, hon Thank you. And you know I, what's
2: ironic about that, jails is I used what? to work with you, so I got paid to listen to you.
0: This is true, <laughs> and I, I got paid to listen to the other people that I listened to as well. So fantastic! The only way, the only way to listen to podcasts is while you're getting paid to do it. Right. All right, y'all. So good to see everybody. Thank you so much for all for for everyone being here. Um, but we got some good movies to talk about, and I know we're going to spend a, a decent amount of time on them. Mm-hmm. So. So what do y'all say?
1: I say just go ahead and dive in.
2: <laughs> what are we starting off with? Uh Eugene this week, I believe. What do we got yes. first?
1: All right. So the first movie we have up is Nomads, which was released March 7th, 1986. Directed by John McTiernan and starring the lovely Bond himself, Pierce Brosnan, along with Leslie Ann Down and Anna Marie Monticelli. And basically, what it is is that you have a French anthropologist who ends up getting haunted by an evil spirit.
0: That's a nice way of putting that. That really, really <laughs> is. That's a, that's a very nice way of putting that. I, I okay. So I got to say, straight First and foremost, just talk about the just the film in general before we dive into it deeper like this. One. Pierce Brosnan, because because when I was growing up, I first I first found Pierce Brosnan as as Bond, as you know, Goldeneye. It was like, oh, Pierce Brosnan. And then from Goldeneye I went on to do things like the Thomas Crown affair, and pretty much there was this image of Pierce Brosnan. And you really kind of forget about him as as like an actor because he's got this image that he this this type of stereotypical character that he portrays. Usually debonair, very well-dressed, very charismatic, you know, ladies' man, uh, prim and proper gentleman, that whole, that whole kind of thing. And then he's played a few bad guys here and there, but he never lost, like, the Bond essence. So this was years before Bond, and I was shocked because if I had seen this first, I would have thought that Pierce Brosnan was fucking French.
1: It yeah. was imp- <laughs> yeah. It was
0: impressive. Because typically you hear you know, actors like you know Brad Pitt like in The Devil's Own was just you know awful <laughs> you know, in that in that film as far as like trying to convey Irish. I love I love Pitt, but his Irish is just not good. And but Pierce Brosnan knocked it out of the park. I was like, that is a French anthropologist. I can believe that for you know hardcore. And also this being oh oh um so Sydney uh you didn't see Remington Steele. So Remington Steele is where he got his start. And I didn't watch any of the Remedy Steel until much, much, much later. But what is this? Cindy Sue? Cindy Sue's in the house. As I stepped in, just jail. It was, think, it was thinking of Cindy, and I was so confused. <laughs> the other <Cindy. laughs> So I actually didn't. I didn't. I didn't uh, check out uh, Remedy Steel. But I thought that Brosnan was fantastic in this, and it's not overblown. It's not like you know a caricature of French people. I thought his role was fantastic, coupled with the fact that this was John McTiernan's first film. And people should recognize John McTiernan for who he is, uh, for, you know, like Die Hard, Predator, Die Hard, Predator yep. uh, you know, the Thomas Crown Affair, a number of really, really stellar films. And uh, this being his first one, you know, not a lot of money. We all start, this is kind of the same, you know, when we start like making, you know, uh, major movies like this, you don't really have a lot of money to play with. So you've got to know, you've, you know, you've got to know your shit. And I think this film alone was so strong in the fact Not only is he telling a very, very creepy story that's kind of based in actual mythology, which is interesting, but the show, this movie really showcased McTiernan's ability, McTiernan's technical mastery, his ability to utilize his equipment to the best possible effect within his budget. And I mean, I love the atmospheres. I mean, he managed to capture Southern California, you know, and make it look, I mean, harsh. And the kind of underbelly, the seedy underbelly of Southern California, which we all know is there, but it's typically not. Captain lets you think of things like Skid Row and stuff. Right. But the, I love the darkness because you he associated an atmosphere with Southern California that's not typically there, and he managed to do it flawlessly. So and and, and, and seriously a gem. If nobody, if uh, anybody in the audience has not seen this film.
2: It's pretty crazy. And yeah, like you said, there's some kind of background on, you know, these demonic Inuit trickster spirits that are taking human form and you're kind of tracing down this, this backstory. It's, that's really cool. But you use the one thing about this was the camera work, um, alone in this. And it's something that I always like talking to Eugene about because it's like, I've seen some of your work and the way that you use a camera kind of reflects, see, I'm saying, I'm saying it backwards. The way that this movie uses a camera kind of reflects the kind of way that, that you like to use. Use the camera as a character. We talked about this. Use the camera as a mm-hmm. character. And in this, besides the, um, what do you call it? Rack focus, right? When when you do like mm-hmm. the, the focus in the back and then focus on the front and focus in the back and focus, you know, and the mm-hmm. really sharp edits in this, the stuff that they, that camera tells the story as it should. You have a static camera in a, in a movie and it's boring. You're looking at one thing, the room's not moving you don't get the vibe from everything going on around you you can't pull that atmosphere in but this this doesn't do that at all this camera doesn't sit around this camera is your eyes you're brought into this this whole film the whole time you're you're on the edge of your seat like oh oh, oh." um
0: it it was because it because in that that, the place because in the storyline she's remembering his right. final day. that's the whole
2: thing, Is it's memory, right. and so it's supposed to be a memory, you're supposed to be thinking the whole time, like, I'm just seeing this through somebody else's eyes, and that's, they did such a good job with that in this movie, especially for being, you know, in the 80s when camera work was pretty fucking shoddy in a lot of horror movies, it was just, it was real bouncy, it was real, you know, throw it on a, a track and run it, uh, but you could tell that they, they put a lot of thought, the director put a ton of thought into how the audience was going to precede the camera work in this. Um, and on top of that, th- good story. Good story. Great camera yeah. work. Ended up being being real good. I'd never even heard of this until you had brought it up. And I was like, Pierce Brosnan, oh, he's not French, is he? And then <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you go through the first, yeah, the first couple of minutes, and you're like, holy shit, and you get sucked into it. And then you, you're there for the story. You're there for the ride. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, you're like, oh, whoa, that was intense. There's yeah.
1: something there's something about British actors that can pick up accents very well. Because right. I mean, you you look at people like if you watch uh, Kate Winslet in Eternal Sunshine on it, if that's the first time you've ever seen her, like I thought she was American for a while until um, I thought she was American for a while. Then you actually see, hear her speech as regular. It's like, no, she's British. You
2: see an interview and you're like, wait the fuck? What's <laughs> yeah, <it's> like,
1: that's, <laughs> no, that's not your voice. But I've I noticed with so many British actors, it's just so easy versus like American actors where it's like a... It's it's kind of iffy if an American can hit a British accent.
2: Dude, Americans can't even hit American accents. Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're from New York now. It's like a you you Southern as, accent, like. you know. As a reason, it seems like Tom Holland, you know, was the best example to be able to switch between the American and the uh, the British accent, which he, because he does it so fluidly, and he, he credits his his uh, voice coach for you know for helping his dialect coach for helping him to nail that cuz he's really really good at it but then again it's it, i don't know what it is going as an american as as an american actor it's it was it's always been difficult the hardest one i ever had to do was a was, was my very first stage production when i broke out um, and i had to play van helsing in a theatrical production of dracula and so here i am like this 23 year 23 year old uh you know just fresh out of school actor um uh, born in california right you know born and raised in california living in texas and now i have to play a 63 year old german man in the late 1800s and so that was <laughs> that was extraordinarily difficult without trying without without coming off sounding like jaja gabor so it was uh, but i mean i don't know what it is but he he knocked it out flawlessly and i thought for what the film is for for the story that the story itself was really really solid for what it was you know it was it's a very simple I wouldn't say ghost story because it centers around these uh these creatures called the Idenwaok which are Inuit trickster spirits which are drawn to places of death and destruction and they pretty much just run around they never sleep they never eat they pretty much just cause chaos wherever they go which also was interesting because at the time this film came out it was 1986 the punk movement was kind of evolving. Into was you know it was always a counterculture, but the Americanized version of this, of essentially you know bands like the Misfits, like Rancid, and shit, where there was this there was this idea of this a- almost anarchic anti-establishment, do you know go at your own base, and that's what these individuals were doing, and that's what attracted the character to it was their nomadic lifestyle, was moving about, just going from place to place to place, you know partying, chaos, do whatever, and that's what draws him into this. And so I loved that McTiernan, you know, had a grounding in this, and was and the way he was able to convey the fact the whole story is told essentially in retrospect while keeping it, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It didn't feel like a memory because it, it doesn't really feel. It feels like you're like the like the audience is experiencing. You're experiencing. You're experiencing yes, which was is a whole. I think it's ultimately uh, this show right here is the home is uh, essentially is why. You can tell McTiernan has had the career that he has had, just the, his strength behind the camera and knowing how to utilize his technology, u- utilizing his work with light and shadow, capturing the alleyways that they did, capturing an almost post-apocalyptic feel in you know at the time contemporary America when things you know the things going on that you never never see or you know you're, you simply don't want to pay attention to, or you you simply write off as be like ah you know whatever those idiots and then they go away. That was what was fantastic about this, and then. The slow consumption of our of the protagonist and the 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 doctor reliving his memories until the uh, conclusion at the end when we see that it's not I don't think it's him I don't think it was him on the bike at the end I think uh, just taking his form I think is what it was uh, yeah I think it's all because they can take human form mm-hmm. so I you think, think so. that you he, don't think that was him I don't think that would like that that would think that was I uh, I don't think he was turned into a spirit I think that was a spirit taking his form is what it was. Which is why it's so freaky.
2: Well, where the fuck is he? Well, he's dead. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, but like, there's <laughs> obviously a spirit world. Why can't we follow his after story?
0: Do you think? you think that he was turned into one of them?
2: I think somehow that's that's what happened. I don't know. I don't know if they gave enough backstory on how those trickster spirits became to be to be like, yes, that's how. That's what happened,
0: and that works too,
2: right? It's kind of mystery. Yeah,
0: yeah. You just leave it. Leave.
1: It. I like how it's kind of ambiguous because you can, you can make arguments for either one right. on it, and but he kind of he kind of lets you decide. Um, one of the things I really did want to talk about was when we started talking about like the light and shadow. Is mm-hmm. I really like how if you notice he does a lot of really hard shadows, and he continues his style on even with Die Hard, and it's a like. If you look at a lot of movies today, a lot of movies today go on more of a natural lighting. So it's kind of a soft, so like maybe one side of the face is darker and it softly goes and lights to the other side of the face. Mm -hmm. You see that it's really, really, that's just what's in style right now. The very naturalized kind of lighting, what people call it. He does the very, very hard shadow. So you'll actually have a definitive line. That goes across their face and it can go here, here, slant and all sorts of kind of stuff. But you'll notice how he plays with that a lot to kind of add to that atmosphere on it, it actually adds maybe a little bit of a little bit of surrealness to it because shadows don't work that way in real life sometimes. Right. Um, and so I, and that style carries on. So I think with this camera work along with utilizing this light and shadow that way, really creates a definitive style. And you can see how he got Die Hard after this. Because it's like a, I like the way he had some really creative shots when during the action sequences. So it's like, okay, well, let's put you in an action movie. And let's see what you can do with a full action movie. And it works.
0: And from there, Predator. So, yeah, I mean, he just, <laughs> he just stayed on that boat. Yeah, that's what I. That's what I really, really loved is because you're, you're, the strongest directors recognize that the camera in itself is almost a character in the. It, I, in my opinion, the, char, the the camera itself should always be a character in and of itself, and you utilize your your shot should be able to utilize not just to tell the story of what's going on in front of the camera but also to convey a particular emotive okay? like like whatever emotion is currently going on in the scene his is use of particular angles because he um, uh, and the way not uh, not so much Dutch angles he didn't rely on them very very he doesn't rely on them uh, hard but that's why that's where lighting comes in. Is he takes you, says like so an awe dynamic, and he's turning the camera in different ways in order to capture like here's the skewed perspective of our villains, and here's the the normal view of our protagonist. He allows the light in itself to convey that, where it's the world that it's the, that's this way, and then we are just figures that are operating in this world. And I love that storytelling component, and only from the idea of utilizing the camera itself as its own character, whereas we're seeing through the protagonist as he connects those two, which is what's so important so that we are immersed alongside this individual so knowing how to use that knowing how to capture things knowing you know how your cameras work the technology and how to control your like your aperture your iris your shutter speed and everything is really 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 important and john maternan i think solidified himself as a as a technical master in this respect he knows what he what he has and he knows how to get what he wants even if because i would love to have been behind the scenes of this thing 1986 you know, low, a fairly low budget film. I'd like to see what they were doing behind the scenes to pull off what he wanted. So this is, uh, if there was a behind the scenes of this of this film, just, you know, somebody walking around, you know, documenting thing, I, I think that would have been cool as shit. Just to see the little, the little tricks that he would have pulled out as far as his lighting and, you know, to capture his sound in order to convey the story. I thought it was uh, way more brilliant than it got credit for when it first came out um it kind of was like there and critics kind of dug it and it was like you know it's this interesting little story but there was the strength of it the strength you know when uh, other studios see this like oh wow he really knows how to convey something here which is why he was able to you know jump to such a large film such as die hard
2: what's die hard i've never seen that before I'm joking. Jesus.
1: <laughs> <laughs> JL almost booty you right there. I knew he like, said,
2: what? This window closes. You <laughs> haven't seen the greatest Christmas do, 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 do.
0: You haven't seen the greatest Christmas movie ever made.
2: Oh, it's absolutely a Christmas movie. And I'm not saying that to be like, oh yeah, it's a
1: Christmas movie. <laughs> That's actually the uh, my saying told
2: jin- or, uh, I'm sorry, what was it? Uh, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger Christmas movie. Jingle all the way. Is that what it's called?
1: Yeah, yeah, jingle all the way. Jingle yeah.
2: all the way. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm I'm putting two movies together at the same time. Don't worry about me. Worry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, um, I do like the simplicity of the film. It's a it's a well written story. Pierce Brosnan is solid. It doesn't over you know doesn't ham it up or chew it up, which would have been so easily him playing a French character. And I liked everybody else around it. I really really dug you know I think Adam Adam Ant. Was what was like the leader of the punk that he beats to death with the with the tire iron and then he <laughs> then he disappears. So really really interesting, uh, just stuff in there I thought it was cool. A staple of the eighties and I really um, I think everybody would really really dig this if they if you know just to give it a shot if they haven't seen it yet. I may have to stream it over in the Discord. This one was a lot of fun to watch. Just a surprising little gem.
1: Yeah, one of those little films. If you really really enjoy. Uh, especially '80s movies, then mm-hmm. absolutely, because it does have it's kind of stylistic of the '80s, so you can definitely tell in terms of difference of today. But I like '80s films, so it works.
0: The uh, I, I kept getting drawn <laughs> back to it. It was the way. Well, what, what got me was it was it was the sequence in which Brosnan is following them. And cause he's a photographer and he's taking pictures of them. And obviously they come up with the, you know, the, the, the epic scene when he's developing all his film. And he's like, wait a minute, they don't appear. In I anything. can't see,
2: where are they?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really, really creepy.
2: Where are they?
0: But he, but McTiernan managed to, cause he's a French anthropologist and, you know, his work, his workplace is just, you know, uh, littered with pictures of all the, the, the tribes around the world that he has been photographing. And I like how watching it was, it was, it was odd. And I thought it was really, really cool. Watching someone move through Americana, through essentially America, watching us as the watching us from the outside, kind of like studying us, which I found was interesting. And the way um, Omni Oris Boros, oh, good to see you, Omni. Uh, thank you so much for being here. But um, he was playing a photographer in this, and I dug how uh, McTiernan caught that, how that just you know the way he moved through that. I thought that was really really strong. So I just really I really really dug it. So, it's definitely a great movie. Check it out.
1: Um, I think we're I think it's about time for us to act.
0: Oh, say, I love bacteria.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, a- a- absolutely. I Die Hard was the first movie I ever saw. That's what my parents told me. So, um that's where my film background begins on Die Hard. When I
2: was 4.
1: Yeah, when I was 4.
2: Yippee-ki-yay, <laughs> motherfucker.
1: <laughs> <laughs> my parents are just like, that's not real blood. Just ignore that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and it worked. Uh, <laughs> uh,
1: then I started watching horror films, so it just went down <laughs> from there. Um, but actually, I want to ask the audience: What is your favorite McTiernan film? We talk about Nomads, we talk about Die Hard, we talk about Predator. He has a, l- a long list of other films. Uh, what is your favorite
0: McTiernan film? Ah, huh, John McTiernan. <laughs> Omniros Yippee Kaye, Mister Falcon.
2: <laughs> oh my God! So funny story. That's what they said on uh, on the TV, the TV version of it. Yes. Uh, and so, so it was on one time. This I was a kid, and it was on TV, and it says it. And my dad, I had no idea what the what the line was. I barely knew bad words. I just remember it going kaye, and I see my dad out of the corner of my eye shoot his head around at the TV. Cause he just in his head, he knew what was coming next, and didn't realize that it was on the TV or editor or whatever. But so it was like Yippee Kaye. He's like, and and then it goes Mother Falcon, and and he goes, oh, I just remember taking a <laughs> breath, going, oh, and then wow. moving, and I didn't know why. And then years and years later, I saw the actual movie. I was like, oh. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> oh. Now, while I love, I love Predator. I love Die Hard. Um, you know, and and of course, Last Action Hero. I've loved I've loved his films. My favorite of his has got to be Hunt for Red October.
1: That's
2: a
0: very uh, good yeah. film. I love what he did in Hunt for Red October. I thought every every frame of that was brilliant. Sean Connery, Alec you know young Alec Baldwin, well, you Sam Neill, everybody in that was just kicking ass. He was like, and we will listen to their rock and roll. And I was like, yes. You know, but I. <laughs> I thought it was just, I mean, I, I like Tom Clancy novels, and I thought Hunt for Red October was just absolutely brilliant and probably one of his best efforts. Last Action Hero, I, I mean, I, I love that one too. Um, There's, I mean, God, die, die Hard with a Vengeance. So great stuff. But I, you know, Hunt for Red October is absolutely my favorite. But let us know what your favorite John McTiernan film is down in the comments below or here in the live chat. and uh, Or let us know, weekendhorror at gmail.com. We got a lot of love here in the live chat. Let me, uh, let me see here. We got...
1: They were talking about the 13th Warrior for a
0: while. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Omni-Oris Bar says, last action hero, damn it. <laughs> Travis Brown says, last action hero. Sarcasm says, die hard, no effing doubt. Yeah. A lot of love for die hard. Absolutely. Absolutely. Me, uh Aaron says, my dad jerked around and I heard a cr- I heard a crack. They declared him dead on arrival from a broken spine. <laughs> <laughs> and they and he says, last action hero here. I saw that once; it was enough. <laughs> oh, yes, Omni. Yeah, Omni's right. Arnold Schwarzenegger is Hamlet. Come on, <laughs> not to be. Johnny does? Go, huh?
1: I got I got to go. Die Hard. I, I <laughs> die do, hard. I got to go. Die Hard. Just. Because it has one of my favorite lines where it's like, you ask for a miracle, I give you the F-B-I. And it's just like, (laughs) sold. I'm sold right there.
0: Donnie does this says, I remember watching Predator by sneaking into the living room after bedtime watching over my dad's shoulder. Nice. Nice.
2: (laughs) I watched plenty of movies through the crack of the door because the TV was right right across the street.
0: Lots of dialogue. Come to the coast. We'll get together. Have a few laughs." laughs. Great stuff. All right. But yeah. Yeah. McTarn definitely. Nobody mentioned
2: Rollerball. Why not?
0: <laughs> okay, you know what? Okay. We want to, we want to forget Rollerball and we want to just jump to basic because at least basic was decent. <laughs> um, ba- at least basic was up before he ran into all of his legal troubles. I know that he had a lot of like legal problems going through a very, uh, a very difficult divorce to be, you know, to be sure. Um a okay. contentious divorce and really resulted in a lot of a lot of problems, and he just you know he screwed up bad. But hopefully he'll be back. I don't know if he'll ever um, I don't know if he'll ever direct again, but I do know that in while he was imprisoned, he wrote a script that he wrote a sequel for the Thomas Crown Affair. I don't know if he'll ever get to shoot it, but uh, you know hopefully he'll come back. I mean I think he's you know one of the best you know directors out of the '80s and you know going forward, and hopefully that's not the end of his career. I would want to end on a John Travolta film. I really wouldn't. So
2: <laughs> <laughs> nobody does. Nobody, nobody wants nobody to end knows. on a John Travolta, <laughs> Travolta film.
0: All right. So what do we got next? Okay. We uh, up next we have J-L,
2: you keep hitting the din de- in de- de- de-
0: <laughs> What do you mean?
2: You just ever. once in a while you just tune out for a second. And then you're like He's doing it right now. What
0: are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> That's a weird way to start a conversation. <laughs> this next movie released March 8th, 1978 called The Evil, also known as Cry Demon and House of Evil. So uh, this one was super cool. So directed by Gus Traconis, written by Galen Thompson uh, and, and Gus uh, Traconis, starring Richard Crenna, Joanna P- uh, Pettit, Andrew Prine, Cassie Yates, and Victor Buono, legendary Victor Buono. The film centers around a group of a professor and a group of college students who are uh, essentially renovating this this old old mansion that they've picked up to turn it into a rehab center. And of course, um, hijinks ensue when they uncover the when the professor uncovers that a hole in the basement that leads essentially to hell. It's because the place is built on a hell mouth, apparently. So, and of course, all manner of insanity uh takes place after the fact. Um, I have to admit, I was uh on for a budget of seven hundred thousand dollars This thing was really, really impressive. Um, I love where it was shot, which is the Mon- I think it's the, the Montezuma mansion in New Mexico. I thought it was really, really cool. And it's just, just oh the Montezuma Castle in uh in New Mexico, but I love I, I, this This film surprised me. I thought it was really, really, I dug it. But ultimately, it was a seriously polarizing film because, and, and I really wanted to talk about. <laughs> sorry, Chris Turner Music Channel. Good to see you, Chris. It says, does John Travolta want to end on a John Travolta movie? <laughs> 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 Probably not. He already has. Um, although The Fanatic may just be the end of that career.
2: John brother. Travolta <laughs> playing Bruce Willis playing John Travolta
1: <laughs> in a movie about Kevin Bacon.
0: <laughs> so I, this one was, this one was seriously polarizing because, and one thing I wanted to dive on about this one is there is a fine line between having a move between making a movie that has essentially that asks questions of the audience that has a real narrative that wants to engage the audience and make them ask you like, you know, like, you know, big questions, like, you know, the, the you know good and evil and truth and and justice and um you know uh things that we talk about you know like motivations behind action shit like that really really you know big topics and then the visual appeal of the film making a horror movie and selling it as a horror movie because essentially that's what this movie tried to do but a lot of critics felt that it was overshadowed by the extreme graphic nature of the movie the the extreme violence that takes place. The blood and and death that it was like wow you get all this visual appeal not to mention you know you know Satan showing up at the very end but and you know a lot of people thought that the message of the film was lost so there was a big divide when this well, movie came out
2: you get this movie and so you go into it it starts up and you're like okay spooky mansion they're gonna see ghosts and it's just gonna be this thing again. Well,
0: it starts and, out strong. I mean, the the caretaker, yeah, the one dude is well, like, yeah. I don't want to be here, but I'm cleaning up. Oh, and then yeah. they're like, <laughs> it was kind of like, oh, it's all quiet and creepy and spooky, and then oh shit, I'm on fire.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> but no, like you said, there's there's like a like a psychological insight. The only reason it really works as horror is because you can call it like a psychological horror almost. It's like you said, it's the grotesque nature of it and everything. But like, um, you're talking about polarizing, and that's that's kind of what you get all the critics reviews on it. And that's what they all say. It's, you know, a suspense film, but there's that. It's extremely suspenseful. Do you agree? Mm -hmm. It was like so edge of your seat, but also you're like, you got the, oh my God, I got to see what happens next. But sometimes you'll kind of zone out because you're thinking like, wait a second, that part doesn't make any sense unless, and then, you know, something happens in the movie. I don't want to ruin this one because this one's really good. But, um, and you're like, Ah, ah," back and forth. But yeah, as, as you were saying, the critics didn't take it very well saying that they were like minimizing like the the theatrical aspect of it to try to push a point but the, if you really look at it they did a very good job and maybe ahead of their time type situation job with telling a story while also making it just insane <laughs> the shit gets real yes that's you it know after he opens up that cellar too and like everything starts locking up and you're like wait a second this might take a turn
0: okay that's rule number 1 Rule number <laughs> one: You take over a property. You take over a property that's like old and, and has a history that you're aware of. Okay, and you find a door in the basement, yeah, like in the in the earth. Yeah. Okay, that is locked with a cross. Right. Don't fucking open it. And <laughs> hey, he tried. He was like, "I want to open this thing. I want to open this." He was I like, know, yeah. I "You're
2: going." What are you doing? Here's the issue. He had time to think about it and then still opened it. There's (laughs) a door in the earth.
0: It's either going to be dead
2: bodies or a hellhole. (laughs) Either way. (laughs) You already go
0: in, creepy stuff is happening. The dog freaks out and just, you know, like, and then attacks people. And all of it. Then you're, then you're, you're like, your girlfriend is saying, I'm seeing weird shit. There's like apparitions and stuff. And then you go down in the basement and find a door. Like this massive like door like in the fucking earth that's locked with that's locked with like an Iron Age cross.
2: No, you look at it, you think, man, the dog was acting weird. My wife's kind of freaking out now. There's this door
0: should open, and, it. The, care, and the caretaker's what? missing.
2: And yeah, the what? caretaker <laughs> is gone. missing. And they're
0: like you know, it's like come on, and it's not mean, like they
2: didn't notice either. They're like, what the fuck, and then <laughs> 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 yeah, it's like. Uh, you, like, go, we wouldn't okay. have, we wouldn't even have, you know, we wouldn't have stuff like supernatural if people didn't open stupid fucking doors that were glowing or you know had crosses on them. Or, we wouldn't have any paranormal movies at all.
0: Jinju brings up a point. It's like, wasn't he supposed to be hearing voices driving him to open the door? I did not pick up anything like that when I was watching the movie. I figured that he, I just came across. He was, he was down. He was down in the basement. He was looking around. He, he they, they repeat a the deal where he looks in the big furnace. You know, where the where the, the fire came out beforehand you know, at the very beginning of the film. And then he's like, he doesn't find anything. And then he comes across and he's like, oh, hey, look at this. And then he like uncovers and he's like, oh, wow, there's a door here. And it, it has like this giant cross that's stuck through the handles. It's like, mm. and it doesn't look like it's really meant to be like, you know, opened in that, in that respect. It looks like it's meant to be opened from the other side. Like, you know, given, given it's uh given the architecture of it. So I was like, Come on, dude. I didn't get this. I didn't get the sense from the film that he was being compelled to open it by anything. I guess he just found something. It was like, oh, this is interesting. I'm going to open this door that was, you know, seems to be sealed uh, some time ago in a holy manner. And I thought, you know, it was like, I was like, come on, that was just silly. But the the stuff that he gave, but that worked. It worked for Richard Prentis' character. Richard uh, Prentis plays the uh, the professor, and throughout the entire thing, he's big on like, you know. This shit doesn't exist. I'm you know, I'm a scientist. You know, there's got to be a, a logical explanation for these things. And even when, like, you know, it's in his face, he's still looking for something to try and grab onto until he finds himself towards the end, you know, face to face with the devil himself. And he found his faith quite quickly.
2: <laughs> I guess it happens.
0: You know, you the devil's standing in front of you, and you're like, oh, well, I guess I'm a believer now. Well, that's the proof I need. You know, exactly. It it's all the proof I, exactly. It's like so That's all the proof I needed. I appreciate it very much. You know, devil up
2: in front of you like Jesus. Oh, I get it.
0: <laughs> oh, it all makes sense now. I, I appreciate the clarification. And then she comes, and she comes in there with a the fucking cross, like oh I was like that was fucking sweet. I thought that was cool as shit. And, she and Victor Buono, Victor Bono played a I thought it was a pretty convincing devil. I liked his devil and how they kind of like you know he he, he was he was he was a heavyset actor and he had kind of this kind of uh this kind of gregarious energy to him which is the characters he usually played then he got to play the devil in this one and i kind of dug it because there was a sinister nature to his gregarious uh countenance that i thought was like oh that really plays i thought victor bono was a good choice for this so i really dug the whole album Not, not to mention to shoot in a location like i've seen I, I i've seen the size of this place that would be amazing
1: that's probably where most of the budget went is just for that place
0: just to secure it for the shoot <laughs> yeah it's like hey can
1: we just can we live here for three weeks for four weeks and just and make a movie
0: that was a the big thing about the big thing that i got so the the film itself sets you know sets up the whole deal the 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 division or to the division line between atheism and theism between logic and reason and fear and and faith and then ask questions about you know what is good what is evil what you know you know what your intentions are what is actually true what do we just make up to make ourselves feel better it has all of these little themes that are running through especially in the conversations that everybody's having like why are you doing this i'm setting up a rehab facility yes but you're setting up the research but you're doing the re, uh, the rehab facility for this particular cause like yeah and so it, it really, you know, there was, a, there was a good story going on there, good solid writing there, where, where it's pointed out by the very students that he has recruited to help him re- renovate this place. Even they are kind of like, well, you know, you're giving us credit to come and help you do this. This is a, a, effectively a financial endeavor, and you're using free labor in order to get all the work done and just giving us credit so that we can get ahead. So everybody's doing it for their own. There's no altruism here. In making this rehab place and so we've all got to come to terms like you know which is this the world we live in but then so you have a really solid story there make it into a ghost story the place is haunted and then the whole like you know gate to hell underneath the uh, you know that's underneath the entire place and then the real shit starts, starts happening and that's when it kind of turns i almost thought into this is almost like a slasher movie because just it's a supernatural slasher movie where this evil spirits are doing things to these people from you know the circular saw scene to which would that one actually got me. That was that one was was kind of rough. Just you know, this the idea of like that was like oh, oh fuck me. <laughs> that that was that was fucking brutal. And uh to the quicksand scene outside and then the storm that rolls in. I thought you know, I thought it was really good, but um I it kind of overwhelms it and you you almost forget the kind of movie you started watching and the movie where it finishes. So it, it may have hurt it, but thinking about this and, and give me your guys' opinion on this, that this was the, essentially the, the ghost story, the haunted house story in the horror genre. This was big, you know, big time throughout the sixties and seventies. This, you know, this was a staple house on haunted Hill, of Vincent price. And essentially, you know, like anything, you know, all the way going all the way back to, um, uh, oh, what was it? Man- uh, House of the Devil in the late 1800s. Ghost stories were a big thing. You know, the time of Harry Houdini and and Arthur Conan, uh, Sir Arthur Co- uh, Conan Doyle, and you know, spirit spiritualism and medium and and, uh, and mediums. Ghost stories were were big business, w- whether they were literature, theater, or in film. But there was a kind of switch, or I guess it. They, they, I won't say they died off because we still do ghost stories today, but they're more violent. They take notes or tropes from other genres, from typically slasher genres, you know, to make them more graphic where the ghosts are doing this. You look at movies like Grave Encounter, uh, Grave Encounter is a paranormal activity. And this right here in 1978 was the burgeoning of the slasher genre. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is already out. Halloween will be releasing that year. In a couple of years, we're going in less than two years, we're going to be getting Friday the 13th and The Burning and so on and so forth. The old Nightmare on Elm Street. The slasher film is creeping in because, you know, Texas Chainsaw came out in 74. So the slasher movies coming in and we're getting this new kind of, this new kind of genre that's like really kind of starting to blow up. And this movie tried to take from both the supernatural ghost story that has like, you know, existential questions to the violence and visual aplomb of the slasher genre and blend the two together. And I while I admire that, I think it didn't maybe didn't play. Maybe it was like Alex said earlier, it was a little too ahead of its time in trying to blend these two together, which is why critics at the time were like, ah, what does this film want to be? I think it knew, I just think they weren't ready for it.
2: Here's the thing, and now that you're talking about it, I'm listening, and yeah, it might have been ahead of its time, but it might not have been in the right region. Because you see a lot of this supernatural. It's scary. It's psychological. There's like a whole story behind the ghosts, but then also kind of that slasher aspect is like J-horror. A lot of that has a lot to do with they really dig into the background of, you know, the the religion of the ghosts and why they're there, and it's always like the big story, and it's suspenseful, but then also you got stuff, you know, like the Ring and the Grudge, where people get brutally murdered right. by said ghosts. So, I mean, it, it it plays in one region, but maybe not Maybe we can't do stuff like J horror. We can't do suspenseful yet slashery, yet psychological stuff.
1: Oh, um, I wouldn't necessarily because I wouldn't put this on track with slasher. Just I mean, just for the sake of even if even have, have a spirit say going around, it kind of misses some of the other tropes True. on it because people people can just die in supernatural films and right. doesn't necessarily make it a slasher. But what you end up having is you have the split. And I always go back to the split happens in 1968 when you have Rosemary's Baby and Night of the Living Dead comes out. Night of the Living Dead comes out and it shows that you can make a successful, low-budget film. And then shortly afterwards, you get, say, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, and the slasher genre is born because most of the early slasher genres – or cheap. Halloween was made, I think, for three hundred fifty thousand. Not in the first Nightmare on Elm Street was about the same budget. Um, the, You have these little nothing uh budget-wise movies that end up making a big impact. And then you, what you end up having is you have the supernatural element, which came from Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary's Baby, one of the biggest films that came out that year. And then shortly afterwards, you get The Exorcist. And right. then once The Exorcist comes out, then the The studios are going for the supernatural stuff. They have the money. Then the the gates of hell
2: open. Uh, (laughs) They they do.
1: They can, because you look at the exorcist, you can put that on a sound stage and they can do all the fancy effects. So then you have the exorcist. You have the omen. You have poltergeist that comes out a couple of years later. So you have this track and this is where I see the evil in is on that track. It goes along that supernatural. doesn't necessarily have the budget of the exorcist, or poltergeist on it but getting that location and the ability to pull off a lot of the effects that they were able to pull off it feels it feels like a higher budget film it, it doesn't does feel, yes. it, yeah it doesn't feel halloween i love halloween but halloween feels like a low budget movie they did the best mm-hmm.
0: what they could and what they have this feels like a studio film it was those it was those those wide those, those, those big sweeping shots yeah. um of of the actual exterior of the castle and that particular scene where they walk up into the into one of the parapets and you can see the huge view of the valley out beyond it and i was like it gave a sense a much grander sense of the environment that this thing is taking place in not to mention the little stunt scene when they try to like get out by using the rope to or i guess using the cable to try and scale to the outside and then the guy winds up getting like electrocuted and, or actually no he immolates that's what he does. He essentially is trying to escape, <laughs> and he just goes up in flames. So pulling that little sun just gave this grand scale to the building they're in. That was really, really nice because if you look at it, if you look at the dimensions of this place, that thing, that place is enormous. That's huge. They could have easily set up an entire crew within there, never would have seen them, and still been able to move freely. There, I mean, the place is it's a castle essentially. So, and I loved it. I like it. It, it, it. That's the whole point of things that can make it look more than it is which is which is which is brilliant
1: and exactly and, and the thing is i know we've touched on this earlier we we're talking about was like well what about the clear message and everything the number one thing of making a film is do you enjoy watching it some films miss the mark but they're really fun to watch and I'll go and watch them again versus like oh yeah that film really made a huge a powerful point and then I never want to see it again because it, i didn't enjoy watching it on it but this is a film i enjoyed watching it if it missed the point or didn't hammer it in enough who cares
0: <laughs> and, and for me personally i actually kind of dug that because i watched it twice because the first time i was like oh wow we're getting this is this is kind of introspective i, I dig with the story they're trying to tell you oh and you know violent ghost shenanigans i mean kicking off the first five minutes of movie you just like get someone just immolated out of the blue it's like, oh fire oh! i was like damn
1: <laughs> okay, so that's
0: the way you're kicking it off. Okay, that's that's good. And then we get into some some. I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. Good setup, characters I could believe in dealing with the shit. The the the, I, the almost almost like sexual assault by that ghost of um, I can't remember I can't remember the character's name because uh, that's one thing oh. didn't stick with me is a lot of the the tertiary characters' names. But there was yeah, like an almost sexual assault names. of the the, the African American girl, and she's up there in the room by herself because she's been traumatized. And then all of a sudden, her, you know, this whatever spirit or whatever thing is attacking her and ripping her clothes off and everything. And that's just, you know, it's going hog wild. And then, of course, um, that visual appeal at a, at, a, at a moment, I was like, I almost forgot what, you know, what the whole thing was going on until they meet the devil. And the devil's like, ha ha, I could do this forever. Oh, fuck. You know, crossing my chest, which was fucking great. That shit was brilliant. <laughs> I seriously thought they were gonna that they were gonna have to leave him down in the basement because he was like, Oh, wait a minute, how's he gonna get up? And this is where this is where it goes. Horror movie rules know how to climb a rope.
2: Because seriously, the only reason
0: voice. Richard Kredit survived this was he knew how to climb a rope. I was like, because I was like, Oh, okay, so he helps her out because you know the, the holes up there, and he gets her out, and I'm like, Oh shit, and he's down there, and he's was like, She can't pull him up. She's like you know, a hundred pounds soaking wet. How the hell is she gonna pull him? Pull this man up? Oh, rope. Okay, well, can he can climb a rope? There you go. Know how to climb <laughs> your ropes? That's very, very important. And you take anything one,
2: from the Women horror podcast.
0: <laughs> and the end of it, I was kind of like, oh wait, there was a. So I had to go back and watch again. And keep in mind, it's like, yeah, you're gonna see you know, a lot of crazy stuff. People getting electrocuted. People putting circular saws in their hands. Getting swallowed up by the earth. You're gonna see all this cool stuff. But don't forget what's ultimately going on. And that was kind of cool on the second viewing because it plays a little bit more into the characters' actions and and kind of like their frame of mind towards the end when he literally encounters the devil himself. And so I dug that. I really, really dug that. So it forced a second viewing just to make sure I could keep something in mind. Smart film. And I think at the time, and I was, I'm going to go, I'm going to hold with Alex here. I think Alex is spot on that this was a little ahead of its time. In respect i think i think that they had a cool story here and they took the violent elements that were starting to rise up you know through you know with hammer horror you know was you know big on the blood and the guts and everything and they took from that what people seemed to really like to see and then ju- and then stuck and then use those these the elements in a film that was smartly written and i dug that I, th- I think it was you know obviously went under the radar and not to mention a fantastic score which i know i th- fucking no i've heard this score before not not before this movie came out i've heard the score used again in other movies i've not been able to place it as of yet i it's it was driving me mad i was hunting for like an hour trying to find i i, I found out who did the score and i was like i know i've heard this used in other films but i haven't been able to place it yet i'm still going to keep looking
2: no, I couldn't I couldn't figure it out either. Yeah, you said I, that I when we talked on Sunday. Yeah, the music before. was
0: by Johnny Harris. Yeah, And Johnny Harris is a legendary uh, composer who I mean if you look up his name his his list of the, the stuff that he's worked on is is so extensive. But I know that what he wrote for this movie I know it's been used elsewhere. Cuz you when you watch the movie you will hear it, especially in the in the quieter moments when they're having, you know, doing exposition or whatever you'll hear it in the back and it's not, it doesn't over, it doesn't drown the moment, which is fantastic. So really, really good stuff. Oh, I see the plot hole has joined us. Good to see you plot hole and wrote it. No last name. Gabby Gabby to you. Thank you so much for being here. And there's Jack Burton. This reminds me of the entity. Exactly. The scene with the girl. I that definitely reminded me of the entity. Very much. So I know that probably made some people in 78 that made them kind of uncomfortable watching that. <laughs> <laughs> only a little, <laughs> only, only a tad. <laughs>
2: I feel, so, I feel something. What is that? Oh, trauma.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so despite the fact that a lot of people, uh, a lot um, a lot of critics believe that this film was overwhelmed by what, by the other half of it, I think it was smartly done, but I'm really curious when this, when this, I want to ask the audience, when this movie came out 1978, the satanic panic hadn't really hadn't happened yet. That didn't occur until the eighties. And so, but the idea of Satan and people who worship Satan and Satanism and stuff was a topic within the, within the uh, within the nation. You know, people. This was a, a subject that people didn't really like talking about, but it was brought up. So, what is and considering the devil shows up in this? What is your favorite Satan centric horror horror film where Satan shows up or it revolves around Satan or Satan's involved somewhere? What is your favorite Satan centric horror movie or satanic horror film? Let us know in the live chat or down below in the comments or at weekendhorror at gmail.com. Love to hear what people think. Absolutely, you know, my absolute, you know, like, I guess, dang, because there's so many. But Satan centric horror film, I'm going to have to go. I'm going to have to go with The Devil's Advocate.
2: Oh, shit. Yeah, I forgot about that. That's a good to, one. The only thing I can think of is The Devil, where the elevator. Oh, Devil. Devil, yeah.
0: M night, Shyamalama Dingdong.
2: Shyamalama Dingdong. That was that was. I think that was one of my first watch by myself scary movies ever. It was great. It always stick in my mind.
0: <laughs> Jinju says it's definitely not Mono's hands of fate. <laughs> <laughs> Jinju, did you know that Mono's got a? Uh, I think uh, well, there was almost a sequel to that film. Yeah,
1: almost. there was almost a sequel. There's a fan made sequel.
0: Oh, fan made sequel. A-
1: Yeah, Manos, Hands of Fate 2. There's a fan-made feature-length one. Uh, It doesn't have anybody related to the original 60s one when it came out. And there's also a 20-minute kind of a high-budget fan-made one also. So there's actually kind of a sequel and a half.
0: Manos 2, Torgo's Reckoning. (laughs) (laughs) Torgo. Um, uh, Oh, Aaron brings up Angel Heart. Oh, yeah. Robert De Niro. Fucking A. Nice. What nice. about uh,
2: Mel Gibson?
0: The master would not approve. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Dave Cernick. The master would not approve. <laughs> uh, with his with him with his knobby knees. <laughs> so
1: apparently the guy who played Torgo while filming did lots and lots of
0: LSD.
2: Wow. Well, yeah. So you that's not see the movie.
0: <laughs> explains a look on his face. <laughs> uh, that's why he's just you like,
1: towards the camera, he's just like
0: because <laughs> uh, he's tripping balls <laughs> I don't know which cameras Constantine
2: Ooh, is a good Nerd one Nerd
0: Journal brings up Warlock 2 Donnie does that bring, uh, brings up Constantine Peter Stormare was pretty badass for such, small, film, for such a small for yeah, maybe a small portion of film but Peter Stormare's Devil was pretty damn cool
2: Ninth Gate how about that one Oh fuck! It. <laughs> Why? Why? We had to bring Johnny Depp into it somehow. It's the only way I could think. Okay.
0: <laughs> Aaron says, "Just enough LSD to shoot, not so much you think the camera's staring into your soul."
2: I think maybe that played into the aspect of his character, actually. To be honest with you, <laughs> that's that look on his face. Fuck, I can see it. Thank it's you,
0: Jack. Jack like Burton says, Nightgate ain't horror." Get <laughs> the fuck. <laughs> I agree. Thank you, Jack Burton. And I can't True. stand that yeah. fucking movie. Fair enough. I can't stand, uh, I can't stand the last five, like the, the last five minutes of that movie. The whole fucking movie. Oh my God. I've never been so pissed off at a film in my life to make me love it so much. Everything about that movie, the direction, the writing, the story, the the visual appeal, the, the cinematography, Johnny Depp, everything was brilliant until the last five minutes. Is like, and credits. I was like, fuck yourself. <laughs> I was so fucking rage up. quit <laughs> table flip. I rage quit. I did. I wrote in Ellis name says end of days? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> You're a quiet boy compared to me. A quiet boy. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> Artie, fantastic. All right, let's dive into our next one. And I've so been looking forward to talking about this one because
2: it you fucked me up with this one because it's it's called something else. Um
0: it, it, it has a it has a couple of names, but that's so
2: let's here, let's get to this part because this is a great movie. Um <laughs> this was uh late phases or night of the wolf, depending on where you're looking. Uh this one came out March 9th, 2014. This was directed by Adrian Garcia Bog and CI Bogliano, I think. It could be Bogliano. I, I don't want to fuck up his name because this is a like I said, it's a great movie. Um uh, this one was starring uh Nick D'Emici, Ethan Embry, Lance Gass, Tina Luis, uh Caitlin o- uh he- Caitlin O'Heaney, man, Aaron Cummings. <clears throat> And this is not what I expected it was going to be, JL. So thanks for bringing this in my life. I had no idea this was even a werewolf movie until we started watching it. But uh, So essentially a Vietnam War vet who's blind is being moved into – he's extremely independent and wants to be moved. uh, So whatever. His son helps him move. They kind of had a falling out. And I was really pissed off about what happened at the beginning of this movie, by the way, one of the first bad things that happens uh, with the dog. And uh, so this this blind man and his dog – are left alone and this town has a werewolf problem and he kind of catches on and he tries to hunt down the werewolf and he kind of gets it wrong a few times but then ultimately uh, has to battle the werewolves at the end of the movie which was fantastic was it five of them
0: was oh, four, yeah there were five. five yeah
2: so yeah so this blind guy and his dog get left alone and there's an attack and and <laughs> then this pissed off vietnam veteran loses his dog and goes fucking john wick on uh, the town full like, <laughs> werewolf. essentially the creepy ass fucking the priest who ended up yeah sorry this one's every aspect it was simple that was the thing it was extremely simple and it was it was done extremely well um and all the critics it, reading up on it it was like they didn't like it and it was like then you get these horror fans that come in they're like no this is absolutely the best fucking werewolf movie you have ever seen um because yeah this one was different but fun
0: definitely one of the best yeah. and what what this one and,
2: outside of like the originals i think oh yeah and, well that, that's
0: what, that was what was that was what was brilliant about this one is that, because you know werewolf films are typically and we were talking about this when we were doing the, the breakdown of it werewolf films come in two different flavors you've got werewolves where the werewolf is the threat where it's typically just like you know the werewolf is itself and then you know people having to deal with the werewolf so then you have the werewolf as a metaphor for something that's going on in the story itself with where, where you would, you, have, you know, like in ginger snaps, there, you know, uh, girls going through, you know, essentially puberty that change from, from child to adult, you know, from child to adulthood. And then of course, child to adolescent, And then so, but that, that change that everyone goes through. And then the werewolf, the change itself coming on, something that is beyond the realm of their control and how the changes that come along with that. And so it's either the werewolf has changed or the werewolf is the adversary. And this particular one is, is the werewolf as a metaphor in this. Now, yes, Nick DiMici uh, is kicking ass, throwing down, and the werewolves themselves were pretty, well, I thought were pretty decent. I love practical effects. I'll always go practical effects. And I love the more, it was a unique take uh, on what they looked like. It wasn't your classic howling werewolf and it wasn't like you're, you're like, oh, I'm a, it looks like more like a brown bear in like, you know, a silver bullet. I dug these ones. And then, of course, the thing that really sells it when you are going for the metaphor story and something that is so important that we stress very, very often that sometimes makes the absolute best horror films is human characters. And that, you know, essentially ensuring that your film, that your script, that the characters themselves are well-built and they're acknowledgeable. And we can say, this is a real person, like this is a person. And when you have stock characters, like pretty much most of the victims in any you know slasher film or you know whatever we don't we don't know anything about them. Building up your characters allows us to immerse ourselves in that story and understand the metaphor because the metaphor doesn't you know you can't really apply that metaphor to a one dimensional character. Then we don't care, and then the entire bulk of your film is lost. That was what was so important, and the performances of D'Amici, of of, uh, of Nick D'Amici, the performances of Tom Noonan, of Ethan Embry, everyone in this. Was so strong for such a for such a small budget and kind of a, for such, for an indie film. I was so impressed, and it comes across extremely well. This is why human characters are so very important in order to convey the deeper themes of whatever story you're trying to tell.
1: Well, and then see, this is why it's it really important to build three dimensional characters, characters that can have depth, that characters that can justify their actions. It's like you can make a character, you can take, say, the high school jock who the letterman jacket who picks and he's star of the football team and all that we've seen hundreds and hundreds of times in movies of that particular character whether it's about them about somebody whatever on it but then adding something adding to the fact that maybe he's dealing with abuse at home that add now it's kind of like this is his way of just adding little elements like that to a character now make it gives it that much depth because a bully is going to play it. a bully is going to play those actions differently based off the motivation so it's not well Is he mean for the sake of mean, or is he mean because he's trying to hide some kind of trauma? Is he mean because he is trying to impress some girl? And you're going to be mean in different ways on it. Mm -hmm. So that's why giving your characters depth, because the thing is this, if your characters are interesting enough, people people will stay around. If you look at movies like 12 Angry Men, Reservoir Dogs, Breakfast Club, where you have characters that have such depth. You can stay almost in one room the entire time, right? And we will sit there. Twelve angry men. They're in a jury room the entire time, but there's so much, so much stellar acting. Every juror has a rich backstory, of and that's and that's how you have a room full of three dimensional characters. And that's what makes Late Phases such a good movie because you, we have Nick Kameni. You root for him. You you, use like you're rooting for him. You can see some of the stuff that he's been through and how it's one of the things about being a veteran, especially older veterans, is veterans like to feel useful. Mm -hmm. And as you get older, some of that is stripped away from you because it's just the fact of old age. And so a lot of veterans rely on their independence. They want to be independent. You talk to veterans who are in their 80s and 90s, and it's so important for them to be independent, despite disabilities like being blind um maybe handicapped in other ways they really really rely on that and so adding that element onto it gives his character that depth on it it gives it that that and that's why that's what makes this movie so good
0: absolutely nick and and um you know i I first came across nick dimitri in mulberry street one about the uh the the rats that turn people into like were rats and they start you know descend upon new york city and tear everything apart and he played uh the and kind of like an ex boxer he put an ex boxer in that and it was and it was, it was decent you know he carried the, it, his characterization wasn't really necessary for that movie because that movie is more of just a monster flick that was a part of the after dark uh, the after Dark horror fest and then uh, i saw him in stakeland where he plays the you know the the old kind of like the the traveling you know, the nomadic vampire hunter in a world or in a a country that's been devastated by vampires. But then he comes, then he gets this opportunity to really, really shine and something that he really, it's something that he captured. And um, I'd love to be able to talk with him, talk about his preparation for this, because I rarely do you see, I would say veterans uh, depicted in such a realistic fashion. The way, he, the way he comes across, because ultimately we we see the movie where we invest in his journey and his arc in this, but ultimately he's not a likable person at all. Like he, he really isn't. He's br- abrasive. He's acidic. He doesn't take, uh, I mean, when people try to reach their hands out to him, he's more apt to slap it away or to come up with some justification why he doesn't need their hand. It was like even when someone's just opening a door for him because he's blind. He was like, "Here, let me get the door for you." He's like, "I got it, okay." He's like, "I'm blind, not crippled," you know. The, and the way he's attempting to interact with the world, but in the quiet moments when he's alone, recognizing he recognizes where he's wrong, and that he simply can't let this. He, it's just, it's just the way he is. And I loved his portrayal in this. And of course, not to mention, you know, he is still an absolute badass, which I, I dug. You know, you sleep, you sleep on the old blind vet, and. I thought that his performance was his, I thought it was his best performance out of anything I've seen him in. I thought it was deep, flawed, tragic, and ultimately heroic and completes his arc in that final telephone call to his son before, before the shit goes down. And that's why it was so, that's why this movie was so compelling is yeah, it's got werewolves in it and ultimately it comes down to a showdown, five werewolves because ultimately the, the werewolf in the town who knows he's a werewolf realizes that to beachy is onto him. And Dmytry is kind of a you know a dicey character, He's like yeah, there's somebody you don't want to fuck with. So he goes around and he makes a bunch of other werewolves so that they can join him and try to you know take the old take the old man out. And ultimately, it descends into a five on one, a five v one fight between this old blind uh, Vietnam veteran, five years in Vietnam. Oof. <laughs> long time (laughs) right and then they descend upon his house and he proceeds to wreak motherfucking havoc on these assholes which i really really loved but that's what was so fantastic is the whole film in and of itself is is essentially how we deal with trauma
2: and uh it it lined up really well so you had the dog dying then you had all this other stuff going on and it took until the next full moon and I want to give credit to
0: here. I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt. I want to give credit here. That dog fucked that werewolf up,
2: bro. Yeah, it's a war.
0: That German Shepherd <laughs> fucked that werewolf up. Shadow wrecked that that motherfucker. I was like, that was badass. I love it when you a got, dog is
2: hero. You got that. That happened. That was traumatic for him. He's been through all this other traumatic stuff, but this traumatic thing happened, and it takes him a few days to kind of get everything straightened out. And when he's finally like ready, then it's the full moon. He's like ready to put the dog in the hole. But then like the full moon's coming. So he's ready in more ways than one. And the aspect of like how he how he identified, he used, you know, his hearing to kind of pick it out. And even if he got it wrong a couple of times, he persisted until he figured out what the fuck was going on. Mm -hmm. And then that all got tied up right at the end. And you know, he knew he made that phone call. And then, you know, his son gets there and the thing happens, and it's like the whole thing wraps up really nicely. Starts out good, has a really good middle part and then wraps up really nicely. Um, and then, yeah, that that's another aspect of the whole thing. That's what I'm saying about the way that he was listening. He portrayed this disability so well that it was like that alone made the movie fantastic
0: yeah no sarcasm says yeah any sighted person who can actually pull off a blind character convincingly is a damn fine actor yeah really really well i I'm, and uh, i got i want to ask you james what did you think uh just him using his he's like you know when he lost his cane using his e tool as his cane i thought that was okay that was okay. that's exactly what he would do It's like you know i like the feel of this one better you know it's just, So so
1: it was was cool the fact that he brought it out, but I'll tell you my personal experience of e-tools. And (laughs) e-tools are different back then they are today, but they are trash. I have (laughs) broken my five of them.
2: They're really meant as like a dig your shithole one time shovel. Well, he
0: will then at the end when he's sharpening the edges of that thing. It's like oh shit. So I um I I dug in this and the you know like I said the film in and of itself is a metaphor for trauma. And you look at how, and it, it examines how different people deal with trauma, and that's essentially the the relationship between Tom Noonan's priest and Nick DiMiglio's veteran, when the the two of them are talking about, you know, because both of them old, you know, be, you know, very old, looking back on their lives, looking at mistakes that they've made, trying to find some semblance of peace with, you know, decisions uh, or or with either, either actions or inactions in the past. And how you know those traumas come to identify come to identify, that they could become a part of our identity, as well as the guy who was the werewolf, who is desperately seeking some way to contain what he is or control what he is, or the priest thinking, you know, it's like, oh, he thinks he's got this problem, but just no, no, he's he's actually a fucking werewolf. And but and how we deal with those things and how eventually we can either overcome them, we can like as as he does, as Nick Demichi's character does. As as Ambrose does, he overcomes his trauma in the end, and he recognizes this is your last opportunity to do this. Can you do this? You know, and then of course the werewolf guy who just gives in to his trauma is like, no, nope, this is what I am, and this is what I have to do, and just you know, all over it's like, you know, none of this other bullshit works. Faith doesn't work. This doesn't work. This obviously is what I'm meant to be. I'm meant to be a monster, and then just be, you know, and then you know, you know, revels in what he is. So and then the priest himself trying to essentially he was a priest because of his prior traumas, trying to find some semblance, trying to make some sort of mea culpa with the universe in that respect. And just I loved how each individual was dealing with their thing, even the people around him. The You know, the lady uh, who lived next door, one of his one of his neighbors, whose husband is stuck in an iron lung, one of the last one of the last remaining iron lungs in uh, in the country and how. Her frustration over that comes out in her nature. She she projects it onto other people, and the people around him. And I dug that. I really really loved it. And then of course Ethan Embry, his son, the son of the guy who you know his mother's dead. His mother died. Uh, his mother died. I think died of cancer. And then. All of a sudden, you know, he wasn't there. He took off on the family. You know, he went blind. He was pissed off all the time. He wasn't wasn't a good dad. He he was an even worse husband, you know, and him recognizing this. And then the son having to deal with this and the fact that in the end, his father was protecting him. And that's why he chased him out of there. Because you you can't be here. So I I, got to say whatever I have to in order to get you the fuck out of here. And then the son recognizing that in the end the trauma of his abandonment, the trauma of Ambrose's PTSD and the shit that he saw when he was in the war. And then of course, everyone else around him. I loved the meditation on trauma in this and how we all deal with it individually, You know, take it to its extreme, becoming a werewolf or in a very realistic fashion, going to war. And especially how people reacted obviously to Ambrose when he came back from that war and the lack of acceptance and having to deal with that shit, like you know, I have to make my own place because no one's going to make a place for me. It was conveyed beautifully throughout this film, and we are with Ambrose along with the journey. And especially when he starts like whooping ass, you know. <laughs> well, one thing,
1: one thing you have on top of it, and this happens with a, this happens with a lot of veterans, is you are built for war you are built to do that that it that becomes your purpose and then for him he goes to war and he's very successful while he was over there and then all of a sudden you come back and all this training all this effort all this thing that got built up and then it's just like a well you don't need it anymore and it's kind of you kind of lack a purpose right to, towards anything because now sure you may know a dozen different ways to kill somebody but you come back to the states
2: and that's illegal
1: yeah that's illegal <laughs> you can't do that can't do so, it anymore so you have you, you have him trying to hold on to his independence and then all of a sudden when the werewolf attack starts happening it gives him purpose again
0: it's almost an enemy says something to engage with Instead it's of just days. Yeah, and yeah. It was like he says, people don't come to places like this, through the retirement community these in. He's like, people don't come to these places to live. They come here to die.
2: Right. That's exactly. essentially
0: what he's doing. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's one last thing. One last thing I, I can put my hands on, you know, and, you know, and I can do something here before I check out.
2: I can right. go out on my own terms. Right. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. This is, this is my time. I decide when it happens. This is my life. This is my life. Uh yeah, no, that that was absolutely it was it was fantastic. All the way to and like you're talking about this the special effects. We didn't even really touch on that, but like the uh, uh the, the I entrance. love I
0: love the I love the camera work on this. Yeah. Oh yeah. That that's what's good. And that's key, especially when depicting, you know, the uh the transformation sequences is is how you utilize your camera. Right. And I thought this was good. The the I okay. I looked into it and I couldn't. I, I couldn't find anything that would that would uh, disagree with me. But I, the transformation sequence, this was well planned out, and I could not see where any cuts were as the camera is moving about when the guy decides to transform in front of the priest.
1: Where the camera starts moving around?
0: Yeah, where the camera's yeah. on him, and then it goes back to his deal, and then it comes back over here, and then goes down, sees his hand, then goes up to the reaction. Then I wouldn't see any cuts. And that was extremely well executed, as far as as far as planning out what you know what you're going to show of the transformation up to this point. Because at one point the camera cuts over to him, the camera cuts over here, and then he's you know the, then the, the 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 eyes are in, and so the slow but steady changes and revealing of what's happening with with a live actor and then uh, someone sitting here watching it happen. That was very impressive, especially for a low budget film. I was, absolutely,
2: pretty, I, and the werewolves were like they were, I mean. Different, scary, creepy, different, which was nice. It wasn't like the same same old werewolf. Yeah, but didn't they, have
0: a, it didn't have a classic look to it. Yeah, it was and, definitely like and right not now. puppets. No, you know, yeah, that's, that yeah, was the Not thing. puppetry.
2: And then at the end, when they showed like the halfway transformed werewolves on the ground, it was like, oh, that was clever. Okay, you can see, you put some thought to that one.
0: Oh, Sir Kazza brings up if he didn't if he hadn't expected to die, he would have worn his BDUs, not his dress uniform. That's true. He goes full dress uh when he go when he go when he goes into this combat. So he was not expecting to come out of this. So
1: which I'll tell you about dress uniforms, they are not comfortable to wear. <laughs> <laughs> they are not. You have he seemed like person. he was working it pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> that was the only part that I was like, I get the point,
2: but, but like, <laughs> You and, know and you're, and not like <laughs> <laughs> you're not supposed to do
1: that.
2: You're not going to be able to fucking Krav Maga with dress blues on. <laughs> oh.
0: I, I, I just uh, – um, well, okay. So Ronan Ellis says no cuts. Then the camera panned over. There was no editing cuts where they would – where you could see where the camera has – where they yelled cut and then they moved to another deal and they set up another shot and then they put the two together. There was fluid motion throughout the whole thing. Which essentially means that in the space that they're working in, which is which uh, you could have done it on a stage, it was like a recreated living room or the living room of this house. You have one person standing here, one person standing here, and here's your werewolf, and here's your guy reacting to it. The camera is, is essentially in the in between the two of them. And the camera is moving in such a way as to convey the entire space and moving in one motion where you see everything panning, you know, panning over and then coming here, and then coming here, and then going up and then going down but there's no cuts, at least none that I could see. Either they were absolutely seamless or they had planned out the practical effects to the extent that they could, that while the camera was off the werewolf, they could make adjustments to what was going on with the transformation and then get the crew out of there before the camera came back around, which takes incredible levels of planning because you gotta be like, now you're in. Then you go here, and now they're and they're out, and so on and so forth. In order to add things to it, which I thought was really really impressive,
2: that'd be intense.
0: And I thought it was a good take on it, and not one that you see very often. Because typically, you'll get cutaways to people reacting, then you go back, or you'll get, uh, or you'll get like, here's the face, then here's the feet, then here's the hands, then here's the back, and then here's this, and so on and so forth. The howling did that, yeah. where they moved to different stages at one time, and then to the girl reacting when the guy was transforming in the in the infirmary. And then usually you have that same thing happened in, uh, uh, you get the same cuts in uh, American Werewolf in London. But in this one, they didn't. And I thought that that was quite impressive.
1: It was yeah, it's stuff. something even, um, just go to YouTube and Google it. I mean, it's like go, go to YouTube and search for it. You'll be able to find a transformation scene on it. Yeah. It's very
0: impressive. Aaron says, climbing ladder in a military dress uniform might result in a vasectomy. <laughs> is no, true. You look good, but they're, they're not comfortable to wear luckily he didn't do a lot of that he just kind of got like knocked down and uh but i mean i love you dude him kicking ass like that it just goes to show that you know i love the just like like, uh we don't really don't allow guns here it's like what because of because of blind there's no rule against a blind person owning a gun it's like look i'm a weapons expert i know more about guns than you know about pop tarts handling his shit like he like he knows what he's doing and then you know waging fucking war on these assholes was just fantastic
1: you I can mean, see i i always love horror films where you see people fighting back that's why i love like dog soldiers um i love even chopping mall where they go get to the hardware store and they're like organizing like, we're gonna fight these uh you're we're gonna fight these robots you're next i the love robots <laughs>
0: Sorry. I love choppy
1: mall. <laughs> but I just, I love it when you have like people who are like, well, we're going to gear up and we're going to fight back. I just, I always love horror movies like that.
2: It's awesome. Mm-hmm. For sure. All right. Well, I think we've covered literally every second of this movie. I'm pretty sure nobody has to watch it anymore because we've talked from front to back. Um, now that we can me- it out. Yeah. Now we can just- <laughs> go put on your werewolf costume. Uh, I'd like to ask the audience. We we're just talking about the uh, the werewolf transformation and how this one is very much different than iconic movies like The Howling. Um, and there's really there's wrong ways to do it, but you know there are also a lot of really creative ways that it has been done. So I'd like to ask the audience, what is your favorite werewolf transformation? Let us know in the live chat down below or at weekendhorror@gmail.com. My favorite, message rates may apply. My,
0: oh, my favorite overall ah oh, my favorite overall has got to be has got to be the howling because it was it was it was both inti- scary intimidating and gross
2: it was gross and it was kind of funny and it was terrifying <laughs> yeah it was different and the, the
0: where the werewolves look fantastic yeah it
2: was done really well
0: towering seven foot friggin monsters you know I just I thought those ones looked fantastic um That'll, that'll probably pretty much always be my favorite was that that particular transformation scene. Um
1: uh, my favorite would probably have to be cursed. Uh just the CGI effects were, were just really on point. Definitely, definitely on
0: point. Ooh, uh uh totally, I kidding, sure. by the way. Totally fucking.
2: Kidding.
0: <laughs> I wasn't even gonna address it. I was like, I would have to say uh ginger snaps did it pretty good. The slow, you know, kind of like uh a- asymmetrical change to yeah. her body to uh to Musical's characters to to ginger's body over time how how it was slowly occur it wasn't like once where she transformed she transformed she was slowly but surely turning into a monster piece yes. by piece and i kind of dug how they would they went until until eventually she was this giant this this uh this titanic uh albino werewolf let's see nana says teen wolf <laughs> love Teen Wolf Sir says I stand by my list American Werewolf uh, in London uh, Ginger Snaps, Dog Soldiers and The Howling yeah. and There's some more love uh, from Angel Rivera Good to see you Angel This is American Werewolf in London uh, medium, uh, Aaron says The Monster Squad was cool based on context The drooling while he's on the phone was a nice touch <laughs> Yeah Mm-hmm. uh plot hole those were vampires not werewolves <laughs> i know he did it on purpose i know he's just you seen if i would say something but i'm saying something we're another same, says not underworld
1: <laughs> listen i can talk about underworld for like an hour on <laughs> some weird stuff the weird 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 hues in that film
0: strange stuff strange stuff indeed all right
2: thank god nobody said it i was keeping my mouth shut but which one uh, nothing i'm not saying it. Uh, there's
0: another there's another one uh called bad uh, i think it was bad moon bad, bad,
2: moon, moon, was bad moon was pretty
0: bad was pretty about the guy who who's like the uncle who's traveling abroad and then comes home and then his oh, uh, yeah. sister-in-law yeah, yeah, and her yeah. son live there and he kind of crashes with them for a bit and he he himself is a werewolf
2: Turns out but got, in yeah, that he's one
0: the, the family dog was the hero because the family dog ends up like fucking him up royally at some point <laughs> It's always cool. Oh, uh Aaron says an American werewolf in Paris, Alex.
2: No, <laughs> no. close, but no. <laughs> no.
0: I didn't ignore you, Johnny. Did he say something else? I don't know. Uh, he says, um, sex machine turned into a werewolf thing. No, it was that 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 gross vampire snake thing. It wasn't a werewolf. They were like they were like serpent vampires.
2: Yeah, he said a thing. Oh, I guess
0: Ronanella's so. name says, Not Twilight?
2: God damn it.
0: <laughs> giant it,
2: there, giant... it there it is. That's what I was trying to avoid. The whole giant, time. Hope we get past it.
0: Giant CGI puppies.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, Tony Regime, good to see you. Thank you so much for being here. It says hello, Weekend Horror and Panel. Definitely.
2: Hello, Tony.
0: Hello. All right, we got one more.
2: We do. And Eugene, I'm so sorry. This one wasn't that bad. <sighs> I mean, we've watched worse. We've definitely to, watched I mean, worse. Okay. Yeah. But we've also been doing this for three seasons. So this is... This is okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but if there, was, if there was a bottom of the barrel for this episode, this one is it. <laughs> 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 We're talking about Parasite. Not the one released in 2019, the good film. The one... Released on March 12th in 1982, directed by Charles Band and his stars Robert Gandolini, Demi Moore, Lucio Bersavini, Sherry Curie, and Vivian Blaine. And basically, it takes place in kind of a post-apocalyptic world where they control the United States, and a deadly flesh-eating virus um, gets released onto the
0: population. And keep in mind, that was Cherry Cur- Curry from The Runaways.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Man, I will, say, I will say one thing. One thing I learned from watching this movie
2: figure out what the fuck you want to do before Demi, you start making a movie.
0: Demi Moore's acting hasn't changed since
2: 1982.
0: <laughs> it is exactly the same. Her like her range is in this film.
2: That's, and I mean, that's it's what, it's say, yeah, so it's so it's what it's been. So
0: it's either Demi Moore r- r- just can't act beyond what she gave in this, or she found what works and she stuck with it and realized she didn't need to change it because she can make movies based upon this, this range. And then she could just run with that. If that's what it is, cool. I mean, if you I mean if you find what works and it makes you money, yeah. fantastic, solid. But pretty much no matter what role you put her in, like anything after this, from you know, GI Jane, Ghost, whatever, Ghost was pretty much the exact same range, just with added tears. You know, G.I. Jane was the exact same range, just with more yelling. So, and, you know, and she got like super ripped in and shaped for it. So, you know, in reality, I mean, I was kind of shocked. I was kind of like, wow, she really, I mean, this is her first film. This was her first feature length film. I was like, damn, it's pretty much Demi Moore. That's that's, that's Demi Moore. She has not altered one bit. There's no, I I haven't seen any kind of growth or or evolution of Demi Moore since 1982. I was kind of, I was kind of depressed.
2: Demi Moore. (laughs) As good as it gets.
0: (laughs) <laughs> Aaron says, I felt her acting at striptease was stellar.
2: <laughs> <laughs> she was acting? <laughs> it was acting?
0: That was that, okay. So, we, okay, we, we, we chuck, we, we laugh it up. We chuck, we, we, you know, we, we laugh it up that the film was not great. The biggest, the my biggest problem with the movie was I'll always dig a good monster flick, you know, just kind of like, hey, you know, evil genetic experimentation monster, you know, like this thing, you know, developed. In this dystopian world, escapes and then the doctor that created it has to go and try and destroy it before it kills everyone. I get that. That's I mean, uh, the monster movies are cool. The problem was that this movie was trying to do way too much. There was, it was focused. There was too much focus on shit that has nothing to do. That really had nothing to do with the with the monster in itself. Your name, the name of your movie is Parasite. It should be parasite centric you hired Stan Winston to do the creature effects on this. that's a Stan Winston monster you see in there and I think the, oh, there's a total of maybe like 15 minutes where there was actually a monster visible. you know where they actually deal with the monster Right and, and I was kind of like that was, pro, that, that was the that was that was the giant issue with this one is that you go into the movie expecting one thing and you got something completely different. They spent more time focusing on the agent for uh, the merchants that was chasing the doctor. I understood. I got more about him than I did about the monster in and of itself. You know, other than that, it's just, you know, this is deadly parasite that's genetically engineered. and He created it and it escaped. And I was like, okay, fantastic. But um, as The Punks were the only redeeming characters. Agreed. They weren't. They're the only ones that really had an arc. <laughs> you know, not even Debbie Moore's character had an arc, but the Bunks did. They went from you know hooligans, dystopian hooligans, to victims, you know, to like antagonists, to victims, to all of a sudden they're the heroes.
2: <laughs> I was like, well, that was impressive. Wait a second. So, like you I said, reformed
0: the movie. The movie is attempted to do too much. It attempts it attempts to create a universe in which this it's this dystopian version of America where pretty much the economy is falling apart. And you notice the gas signs in it that were like thirty five dollars for a gallon of gas and shit like that. Then you bring in everyone's driving these like falling apart, you know, cobbled together uh, cars, and then you have the the merchant, you know, the agent who comes in, and he's he's driving. I think it looked like a, was that a Lotus? It looked like a Lotus to me. It looked like a POS. That that black car, that sleek black car with the with yeah. the uh, the what what are those doors with the...
1: Oh, you're talking about the suicide doors, right? This, oh, okay.
0: Yeah. where well, they would well, they rise up the the wings. Okay, yeah. so. This futuristic-looking car. It was like, it was like it's not a futuristic car. That's just like a, a super expensive car. That's all it that was, you know, at that time. So you're trying to create this dystopian environment. Then you've got the merchants that they never really explain anything about. But you've got this agent who's working for the merchants. Then you've got this doctor who creates this life form. Goal wings. Thank you, Angel. I appreciate it. Goal wing doors. Then you've oh, got the monster, you know, and then the monster escapes because of the, because of, you know, the hooligans, the, the ruffian punks. And then there's so much going on the stuff with the doctor the stuff going on at the hotel the stuff going on in the little i guess the little cafe or little diner thing that the, you know, the that the old black guy's running the the agent the merchant demi moore's character what the hell is she doing out there all of these things going on oh thank you um sir cap says it was a lamborghini okay and so i'm kind of like the movie didn't really know what it wanted to be and that was the problem. It should have focused on one particular thing, namely the, the, the title of the movie, which is the fucking monster, but didn't do that.
1: Yeah, that's a when when you make your movie, you have to keep your point clear, and you can't. It, this is it. Felt like somebody had a bunch of good. Oh, that's let's not, that's not say good ideas, but someone had a bunch of ideas, and then kind of midway through production, they're kind of like, "Well, we we throw this in there, we throw that in there, we throw this in there, we throw that in there." You throw in so much stuff that you get away from the overall like vision. And this is especially with like my experience of directing, where you you're working with like producers and all those other kind of stuff keeping the clear vision of your film. And because people will interject stuff and sometimes people will, sometimes somebody will have a good idea that will influence your film. But as a director, you have to be able to tell, does this influence my film or does this, does this improve my vision or does it get a detract from it? And if it's something that detracts from it, you start getting a hodgepodge of other people's ideas. Because whenever anybody reads a script, you're going to see it differently. So if you gave the same script to all three of us, we're all going to picture something different despite being the exact same script. And that's true when you're dealing with any kind of crew, with your cinematographer, your producers, your editors, and stuff. And so a good director, you have to get them onto your page so when they have an idea, it enhances your vision versus they're throwing ideas. And then if the director's really kind of weak, they may just go with it because actors will fight for more screen time. Whoa. Oh, actors will love to come up with well, if I add this line, we add this scene, we add this and that, so they get more screen time, but it detracts from vision. Um, and let's say the editing, you need an editor is like, listen, that's a great scene, but this isn't this isn't pushing the plot forward right. at all. This is a whole side thing that no one's gonna care about. And so this is what happens: you get a weak director. And a bunch of people end up influencing it in the wrong different ways. And you get this kind of uh eh.
0: You know what may would may factor into this is because this particular um and it was odd is because at the time, because this was uh, uh directed by I uh, Charles Band. And um I wouldn't have expected I wouldn't have expected him to be to have been influenced in this respect. But then again, this was kind of early on in his, you know. Yeah, first you know, young filmmakers, you know, when they're really starting to when they're really starting to get budgets and starting to get productions that they can work on, I guess can become before he became before band became more established. Young young directors can be influenced, um, can be influenced by I guess your producers or our, our other voices because they don't trust themselves. yet, you know, or they haven't gained the confidence to trust that they that this is what I want to do. This is how I'm going to convey this. That there is a certain amount of uh, there's a limited amount of oh, I want to use the I want to use the term I guess lateral movement as far as what the director's vision is and what everybody can add to that. So the director has to know where those borders are. Be like, this is the vision. This is creatively what we're doing. The only thing that should hamper this is, did the producer say we can't do it, or is some somebody who's controlling the funding of this, or do we simply not have the budget to do it? Or is there some issue that's been brought up that is hampering this? There should be only logistics that get in the way. Other people think coming in saying, hey, I think you need to add this to your vision. Sure. You know, there's, you know, there's some, there's some flexibility there, but it, the director's gotta be confident in what they're trying to create. And I, I can mean, see that if, if this was early, if this was early enough on there, he may not have had that confidence and kind of yes. gave into that. Yeah.
2: You gotta more. wrap stuff up too. That was the whole thing you're saying they're chasing the agent around this whole movie. That's like a side story that you could have like wrapped up at some point, but it just never went anywhere. There was no depth to that story. And honestly, like honestly it was kind of boring. Like the movie was pretty there was some like oh you know intense scenes and stuff but in between it was just kind of like black. The story's boring. I'm not following the story. And then it jumps back in, and you're like, oh, yeah, cool. Back to the Paris. Oh, nope, it's gone again.
0: Sarcasm yep. brings it out. I truly believe it would have been better if it were not a 3D movie. Yeah, and actually. I think they're, you know probably the only reason they did 3D is because they realized that, I mean, production wise, there's not a lot here. There's so much going on, and so little time focused on what the goddamn name of the movie is about. It was like, why? Why would you even just just? You cannot make up for bad filmmaking by putting in something that's you know like, it's like oh it's exciting it's three D oh you know in your face that's not going to save it. It's gimmicky. It's yeah. gimmicky. I guess it in nineteen eighty two, I guess it was gimmicky enough to to bring people in, but that just people go in and they recognize oh there's really not much going on here. I mean,
2: so that's like, James Cameron.
1: It's like three <laughs> <laughs> D's gimmicky then
0: fine, I'll I'll invent new 3D. New 3D, (laughs) Cameron 3D. And that was the problem. the, The big issue on this is the film didn't know what it wanted to be. Either the director didn't know what kind of movie he wanted to make or the script itself was nebulous enough that there were a lot of different ideas coming in. But that's the problem with it. We've talked about this in the past. Your film has got to know what it wants to be. Does this does this want to be a, a a monster movie based upon the parasite? Hell, it's the title of your fucking movie. Does it want to be a sci fi dystopian adventure film? Does it want to be a thriller where the agent is chasing the doctor who's trying to save the world, and he wants the the evil organism for you know nefarious corporate you know warfare purposes or whatever? All of these things are hinted at, and we get little bits and pieces of them none of them add to the plot, especially when we were expecting and we are anchored to the idea of a monster movie. And then the monster comes out, kills a couple of people and they eventually shut it down and then credits. Like
1: And and see, on top of that, that's where you have to manage the audience expectations where you have a lot of films that become cult classics because they were mismarketed. So if you're coming in expecting, oh man, I'm going to expect a gory creature feature and then also I mean, you're not getting creature stuff at all you're getting the agent running around it automatically starts to disappoint people and what ends up happening when you mismarket a film is the people who go see it don't get what they're expecting so they don't like your film and then the audience that may have actually liked your film don't go see it because they think it's something else or so their opinion so- gets
2: overshadowed when it comes to criticism and right. that's all people see is the negative because it was just essentially just chopped and screwed exactly on it so you
1: because the people who do see it they review it badly and so then say some of the people who may have actually enjoyed not saying this one just films in general who who may have actually enjoyed it will go look at the reviews and go oh I won't watch it anymore right
0: sounds stupid Donnie does that brings up worst thing about 3D movies is creating shooting scenes specifically for 3D yeah that just doesn't work at all. And then Aaron brings up design by committee will kill a creation every time. Too many cooks in the kitchen. And you know, g- given as early on, there's a lot of first here. I can see why that would be problematic. It's like you've got too many voices in your head, it becomes it winds up being death by a thousand cuts, or you cater to this as like, you know, it's like, oh no, we want to do this, we want to do this, I want, I want this particular thing. I will give this as far as visual appeal the monster itself looked pretty good Stan Winston effects I the monster looked okay when when you were able to see it it was it was effective it was like oh it's like this giant man-eating fucking tadpole looking thing with you know lots of teeth I was like okay cool the monster looked all right the kind of set area that they were working in this very dystopian I, I I dug that it was very road warrior feeling I dug what they were trying to convey. I, I like the dilapidated. I love the oh the um, the the oh was it the overexposed, blasted out look of the entire movie. I thought it worked. Colors where they're just like the, everything looks like it's blasted out, you know. And I dug that. I like it looked hot. It looked uncomfortable. It looked gross. Everyone with you know it, it just looks dirty and everyone just kind of like it was kind of like recuperating from the after effects of some great war. Very done you know to great effect in movies like Book of Eli. And I, I I like what they accomplished there, and unfortunately, a bunch of little small good things all stuck together don't make for one big great good thing. Especially when all of those things are completely different in their identity. You got to be able to focus on what your film is, knowing what your movie is, your movie's identity. I'm telling a monster movie. The focus should be on the monster itself, not a whole bunch of stuff that you that you know tertiary people might think are important. And that's where this thing kind of lost its. And it I was kind of like, "Huh, I saw what, what could have been there on paper, on script. This thing might have worked really, really well, but may have. I haven't, I haven't. Because sometimes you pick up the original script and you're like, "Whoa, this is not what made it to the page, what made it to the screen." I would, I would, I would like to be able to find that and be like, "Holy shit! Why wasn't this scene in there? Or why wasn't it? Or yeah, you know, why didn't they do this?" Unfortunately, be, that's the business. Sometimes
1: it would be great. Yes, that's, that's what they we have a saying in the business where you have your three scripts you have the script you write then you have the script that you end up shooting then you have the script you end up editing at the end and mm-hmm. rarely are all three of them the same thing on it and it is clear this is where it sticks to clear for the vision when i when i directed my first film that actually had an organization behind it and they put up money behind it and i mean it's just just a short film uh, about five years ago on it and this was a lesson even myself i had to learn a hard way because you get people kind of interjecting stuff here and there and the the vision ended up getting really blurred like this was this was my first and this is a short film I'm it can be difficult even more difficult on a feature and it came out and I'll tell you the film the film's terrible is it five years (laughs) ago I'll tell you the film is terrible it screened one time and then it's sitting on my hard drive somewhere um here on it and like that is it is terrible but it was a great learning lesson so when next projects like when i did a uh, black cloud last year where they put up money once again uh not the same organization different people this time i picked and chose my battles right and that product that project came out way better way i can't i'm really hoping that i can get the okay to show either the trailer or a clip from it or maybe even the whole that whole episode is like 30 minutes at some point here on the show. Cause I think a lot of y'all really enjoy it, but picking, shooting your battles, knowing when to concede. Cause sometimes you can concede on something, but still on your vision, but you can kind of make <laughs> the producer go, Oh, you know what? Yeah, you are
0: right. And you're like,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> to <do
0: that."
1: laughs> how to, how to work that system.
0: We ran into that. We were in that, that, uh the short film um, that, that uh, I AD for you, uh, Eugene, On uh, that little, that little one, there was a moment where I was kind of, no, I gotta shut my mouth, because even as the ad, you still gotta, you still gotta know your place. And I was kind of like, and it was what was in my mind was a, a way just to, to to shoot the to shoot the sequence it was like you had the camera straight on and you've got uh, he's where where he's talking to her and she's standing there and then the 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 entity was behind her and then you had you hit like this was like moving the cameras to a way so that it was kind of like it was kind of like that. Mm-hmm. and then it, the, the reveal was more like where it was hidden, and then all of a sudden the camera moves so that you could go, or, you know, so you get that effect. You know, where, like, she looks static, but then the camera, like, kind of turns to the point where you get that reveal. It's like, oh, I stand behind her, and oh, that's over. freaky. And I was like, I think that would be really cool. And I was like, wait, no, no, shut my mouth. No, nope, it's going to work just fine. Don't don't need to do. it was like, oh, yay, fun camera effects. It's not that simple. And people got to understand that, especially, you know, like actors who don't have a lot of behind-the-camera experience just I was like, hey, I've got this idea. And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, no, Yeah, no, because setting up for stuff like that takes time. You, you look at at a camera reset. You're looking at blocking. You have to ensure that you have the space to move. You can't just do shit like that on the fly. And sometimes when you put in the director goes, oh wow, that could be interesting. Yeah, let's try it. No, nope. now you just wasted half an hour at minimum just to try and set up for this one thing when you don't even know if it's gonna work. So that's why I was like, you remember that moment? Yeah, I was standing behind the camera and I was looking like this, and you were you were talking with um, uh, oh, what's her name? Andrea. You're talking with Andrea, yeah. and I was like, maybe. If, and you're like, what? What? And I was like, no, 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 no. Ignore me. No, nothing to say. Nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> Take it easy, nerd journal. Um, that's like, that's the perfect actually the perfect time. So, but uh, oh, yeah. but yeah. This was a big uh, this whole film the uh, parasite in itself was i think was just a big example as to when you are filmmaking know what your movie is know what your film's identity is know what movie you're trying to make and don't cow just because other people have things that may sound interesting or whatever just stick with stick with what you know stick with what the film's trying to be and execute the creative vision um, as best you can
1: it's a it's a balance of don't don't We're not necessarily saying, hey, don't take suggestions from people, but listen to them. And then how does that convey against your own vision? Because sometimes somebody can come up with a better idea on and it's like, actually, that portrays my vision better than my original idea. And then you can run with it. And that's OK. That happens all the time. But don't don't be afraid <laughs> at the same time if it it to detract from
0: to say no. Aaron says, yes, Mr. Norton. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Excellent point, Aaron. Excellent point.
1: So, But actually, I think it's a great time to ask the audience. What is your favorite dystopian
0: horror film? Oh, dystopian horror film. Dystopian horror film. I have that actually have to say as far as like a dystopian Amer- like a dystopian American uh, America or wherever just like a world that's like you know I would ha- actually actually I'd have to say my favorite would be ooh, horror film Stakeland because Stakeland conveyed uh the fall like like what would happen with a world that had fallen at the expense of uh, at the, of some virus or whatever. It was the, the, the vampire virus that, that destroyed everything. It conveyed that extremely well. And then the pockets of civilization, the cults that rise up in this, and just you know the, the communities are trying to survive and of course the monsters in and of themselves. i really, really dug that with. stakeland pulled it off really, really well. Uh, Charlie Wolf says Cloud Atlas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Angel Rivera says Screamers was okay. Screamers. I mean Screamers did pop in my mind. Yeah. So Little Wolf brings up Undead. I thought Undead was pretty good too. And Sarcasm is a boy and his dog. It was my first. Very cool.
2: That's You need to like make sure you've got that punctuated correctly.
0: What do you mean? A boy and his dog?
2: It was my first.
0: Oh. Punctuation <laughs> <laughs> is everything. Blondhull says, Castaway. <laughs> Jesus. It's a
2: psychological horror movie.
0: Well, definitely let us know what in the I comments said? below. <laughs> let us know in the comments below or down or at WeekendHorrorGmail.com. What is your favorite dystopian horror? I think it's about that time. I think. Uh, uh, what maybe? time, Jail? It's about. It's, it's trivia time, baby. All right. For this week, I know this is what everybody is waiting for. They 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 hear us talk about uh horror movies and it's like, oh, get to the trivia question. So I can win swag, so I can win cool stuff. All right. So our trivia question day. We and we are giving away a limited edition number four t-shirt, weekend official weekend horror t-shirt. We're giving away a limited edition number four t-shirt before they leave the store. They will be leaving the store here soon. So as we and then we will unveil our limited edition shirt number five. Ooh, Rodin Ellis brings of Hardware. Excellent, Hardware was good. That was a good one. So um, bringing this up, so a weekend horror limited edition shirt number four. So you will need to let us know what size you want and what color you want the shirt in. They are on the weekend horror store at Teespring. You can find that link in the uh, in uh, the description below. And uh, let's, you know, whoever's gonna win this one. So let's get, uh, let me, without further gilding the lily with no more ado. The trivia question for tonight is, Director Charles Band is best known as the creator of what three decade long running horror series? Of course, you know the answer, Blot I'll say it again. Director Charles Band <laughs> is best known <laughs> as the creator of what three-decade-long running horror series? And the first answer in the chat, <laughs> no, the answer is not Bob Saget. <laughs> 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 Little plot was a Little House on the Prairie. That's cute. Oh, I, got, I thought I had my volume turned down. There we go. So I've got the live chat up, and let's see who's got it first. Dan Hadfield. No, it is not Leprechaun. Sir Little Wolf. There it is. There it is. As soon as it pops up on the screen, because it's not there. I've never
2: hopped up on yet.
0: I <laughs> Jail's just because I beat him in trivia again. Hardly, my good friend. <laughs> um, okay, so spelling aside, uh, so Little Wolf is correct. It is the Puppet Master series. So I see that Charlie Welch was in there really quick with Puppet Master, Tony Regime, it was not Halloween. Me, uh, Aaron, it was not the Lawrence Welch show. <laughs> okay. Wait, hang on a sec. So, Chris Durbs uh, missed my answer. I didn't see your answer.
2: Chris Durham, uh, where was Chris Durham's?
0: I saw. Oh, way. Oh, he I said. Didn't win. Okay, Chris Durm's question uh, answer was Bob Denver and Return to the Island: The Howling. Oh, that's so <laughs> close. That was cute. That was. Muppets Take Manhattan. Muppets Take Manhattan. No, um, no, uh, no. It was not Friends, and is not <laughs> the Flintstones either. But yes, uh, Sir Little Wolf knocked out of the park with yes. It was the Puppet Master series. Was the three has been running for over 30 years and created by uh Charles Bands Full Moon, uh, Full Moon Features. So, congratulations to Sir Little Wolf. That is a week in horror limited edition number four shirt. Sir Little Wolf, congratulations. Uh, let us know what the size shirt you need and the color that you want it in. If you need to double check. Um, you can go on to the teespring and check out what colors we have available. And then of course the size, and we will get that printed and shipped to you ASAP. Congratulations again. Way to go. Nice. Congratulations.
2: You got a shirt before I did. Damn! You can always go on and get one. I know. I definitely need to go order a bunch of stuff off of that before it leaves. <clears throat> and that will bring another episode of weekend horror to close. Thank you guys so much for listening. And we truly hope you guys had a good time. Cause we did. Join us next week when we look back at the iconic horror Evil Dead 2, the original viral terror of the crazies, deep sea science horror in Leviathan, and the excellent cannibal horror Ravenous. I can't wait to talk about Ravenous. We'd like to send a special shout out to all of our amazing amazing patrons who continue to help make Weekend Horror the incredible success it has become. Thank you guys so much, seriously, for everything that you do for us. We love doing this for you, so thank you. Be sure to stop by Joshua Olson's store, www.batsamurai.store. He does all of the artwork for the show, um, and he's got a lot of his own designs uh, that he showcases at that website. It's fantastic. Go check him out. Uh, For more, uh, more horror fun, be sure to follow us on the socials where you can get our daily splatter right to your feeds and at Digital Darkness, our new gaming channel hosted by Alien X Gaming. Please comment, like, subscribe, and smash that bell as if you're someone's number one fan for all the latest updates from the show. Those interactions really help us appease the insatiable hunger of our dark god, Algorithm. Just just taking it out of us. Fuck that guy. (laughs) Fuck that guy. (laughs) Fuck (laughs) that guy. There should be sections in fucking Catholic-like history of Algorithm. (laughs)
0: <laughs> i see some dystopian horror future we're all living in where we're all dying of worshiping the algorithm
2: you're just like buildings blown up rubble just everywhere and algorithms just spray painted on the side of buildings yeah it's definitely what it's headed, have you sure. seen
1: that have you seen that one meme where i have a robot pointing to the screen and you're like showing you the meme you posted that's getting you executed
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's yeah, sounds about right well And lastly, if you love what we do here and you would like to and are able to support our production, you can through our Patreon. Uh, we have tiers as low as one dollars a month. That's cheaper than a Walmart bin Uve <laughs> fucking Uve ball film.
0: You trouble with that line,
2: <laughs> God. That's cheaper than a Walmart bin Uve bull film. Fuck, I can't even see his name right. He sucks so bad. Higher tiers get early <laughs> and special after dark access, bonus content, monthly horror movies, and can even join us as special judges on our bloodbath debates, which has been fantastic. Thank you guys so much for participating in those. It's been a blast. Uh, But if Patreon is not your modus operandi, you can always support us directly through our PayPal. Links to everything, including our Discord community, where you can find film recommendations, trailers, trivia games, horror watch parties, and even interact directly with us are in the description. As always, sharing the show with the fans in your local horror community is the absolute best way to help us further our goals of global horror domination. (laughs) Thank you all so much for being the greatest audience a podcast could have, and we truly do mean that. Thank you so much i'm alex
1: and i'm eugene i'm jl we'll see you
2: next week as always stay scared